button is no longer hiding. Oh. Well, if you guys have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up. We're going to be taking a look at 1 Kings chapter 18. And as we, uh, as we head to 1 Kings, um, I want to invite you on your way. It's really not on your way. But on your way to 1 Kings, open up to the book of James. And we're going to take a look at James chapter 5 real quick. Right after the book of Hebrews. In James chapter 5, as we consider what we have uh, from the Lord this evening, it says in verse 13, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. James 5.13 Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed for the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much then in verse 17 of chapter 5 of the book of James says Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed when we, when we take a look we're going to be looking at the one of the main Bible stories of Elijah, everyone's familiar with the story if they've uh, been brought up in the church at all, of Elijah and his battle with the 450 priests of Baal. And one of the incredible things that, that we see in that as we take a look at it is to back up a little bit and recognize and realize, <coughs> first off, James tells us there's nothing special about Elijah. Elijah didn't have some... Uh, abnormal spirit that nobody else can have he'd had the bible says he was just like us but then it lays apart this phrase and he prayed that whole section of james from verse 13 through and we'll finish it out here in just a second but as we as we look at that whole section that whole section of james is all about praying it's all about seeing healing work in the lives of believers because they prayed. It's all about seeing the hand of God move in people's lives because they prayed. It's all about not being caught up in our, our pretenses, but being willing to go to a brother or sister and confess your sin one to another, not to go boast or brag about it, but so that you might be healed. Healed of what? Healed of the sin. Healed of the damage that sin works in our life, what it causes in our life. What we tend to do more often is hide it, neglect it, and we, unlike Elijah, don't pray like we ought. Elijah prayed. As we look, as we finish out this section in James, not only does it say Elijah, he prayed, he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And we talked about that last week. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. 
Neither was there any dew, the Bible tells in 1 Kings chapter 17. No dew, no rain, three and a half years. What kind of famine are they dealing with in the land? Nothing's been growing. The rivers and, and streams are dried up. In that area of the world, especially where we're talking about, they have what they, what we, what they call a river is really a wadi. It's a, it's a small stream. And those small streams, they run year-round, but eventually they perish. Why? God put them in a land where they were required to commit their relationship to Him. And in their relationship with Him, He would give them everything they need. It's no different for us today. For them, it was very practical. For them, the practical issue of living in the middle of the desert, if you ever go to Israel today, there's a few places that are kind of cool and green, and, and, but there's a whole lot more places that are brown, sand, wind, nothing. Yeah, rock. You make you wonder why everybody's fighting over it. It's ridiculous, really, if you go. The reason they're fighting over it is because it has a spiritual thumbprint of God on it, and everybody wants it. They just don't know why. When they sit in that place, their relationship with God for their practical things in their life was a requirement so that they would know they were walking right. Jesus said to you and I as, as believers that as we go about our everyday life, we too will enter into times of drought. And a time of drought is a symbol, is a signal to us that says, hey, you and I, we got to get together. The Lord saying, you and I, we need to spend more time together. We need to, you need to come before me. The people were to come before the Lord in prayer and God would reveal to them whatever the issue was. They would confess, repent, move forward and the rains would come. Three and a half years, no rain. Three and a half years, they, they were all worshiping, don't forget, they were all worshiping the God called Baal. You see him a lot in scripture. <clears throat> Tonight he's going to be called the Baals because he's a, attributed to three other deities, but the, they're kind of all mixed together. But the point is, Baal was the sun god, the god of the storms, the god who controlled the weather, the god who controlled the rain. And as this god, Baal, this god, he would perish every year and they would bring about sacrifices to bring him back. And when Baal came back, the rains would come. So the people of Israel are not worshiping God, they're worshiping Baal. And so God, through his prophet Elijah, said to the people, it's not going to rain for three and a half years. Why? For three and a half years it proves that everything they're doing is a, waste, a wasted effort. Whatever sacrifices they make to Baal, does it bring the rain? Has it changed their circumstance in three and a half years? In essence, all God has done is taken his hand off the people. His hand of provision is gone. And the people are in that place. And James tells us how that was accomplished. He prayed. He prayed. Now, if our world isn't more screwed up than Israel was in those days, I don't know what you're paying attention to. It's messed up. But God said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. He said, if they would repent and turn from their wicked ways, I'll hear their prayer from heaven and heal their land. Big if though, right? The big if is if my people pray. But when we come down to the reality of prayer, we get hung up on it, right? What's the purpose? I mean, 
Maybe we lean toward the sovereignty of God and we figure God's in control so we don't need to pray. But that's never anywhere in the page of Scripture. In the page of Scripture, God calls His people to pray. He says in James, James writes, the brother of Jesus, he writes down these things and he says, if someone's sick, pray for him. If someone's caught in a sin, have, it, have him confess it to his brother that he might be healed. And then he gives us the example of Elijah. After talking about all this prayer, after talking about the, the, the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. We don't, I think, understand the word fervent. Fervent, the concept of fervent is to have such a strong desire to see the hand of God move that you are fasting without trying. Well, I mean, you're seeking God's face so hard that you forget to eat, that you forget to work, that you forget to get up, that you forget to do anything else but seek His face. The fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. That seeing Him move, seeing God move, seeing God do things is so important that everything else is secondary to that. And then James, for his example, looks to Elijah, like we've been talking, like we've been studying in the last couple of weeks. He looks to Elijah. He says he prayed it didn't rain for three and a half years. He prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the faith, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from error in his ways will save a soul from death. And cover a multitude of sins. All of that has everything to do with what Elijah's doing in chapter 18. What God's doing in the hands of a servant. It's interesting because in, in 1 Kings, as we take a look, what we discover is Elijah just appears on the scene. We don't hear about where he was born, what his childhood was like. He's just there. It's interesting that in prophecy in the book of Malachi, Malachi chapter 4, it says that Elijah will come again before the return of Jesus Christ to turn the hearts of the people back to the Father. To change people's hearts. You know where that happens the first time? 1 Kings 18. A whole nation is caught up in sin following a, a God that's only going to lead them to destruction. And all of a sudden, there's Elijah. Elijah, we're, we're about three years down the line from 17 to 18. Elijah told Ahab, it's not going to rain until I pray for it to rain again. And he left. And uh, we'll see today, Ahab looked for him. He searched for him. Why? He wants him. Jezebel was so angry at what Elijah had said that she began to line up the prophets and slaughter them. Kill all the true prophets, all the schools of the prophets. She's obliterating them. If it wasn't for Obadiah, who hid 150, I think, he hides in the caves. We'll see it tonight. If not for that, she would have utterly destroyed all the prophets from the land. <coughs> as much as she was able to get her hands on. All the while, you remember last time, Elijah's just kicking it at the brook. Kirat. He's at the brook, remember, he's got his water there until the water shrivels up. When the water shrivels up, when he needed food, the ravens, the birds, they brought his food. And, and so he was sustained by the hand of God. 
he stayed there until God told him to go to another place and live with a widow. And he went and lived with that widow, and God's provision was with him. The whole point is, all throughout the journey of Elijah's life, God shows him and us, God is able to provide. And God specifically sets Elijah apart on the pages of Scripture as a man who prayed. And James, just in case we start thinking he was something better or different than us, says he was a man just like you and me. So what that means is, what could happen in our world if God's people prayed like that? If they just sought the Lord, that they were committed. What if the prayer meeting was the biggest meeting at the church? What if people pouring out their hurts and their hang-ups and all the issues in their life was the, the biggest time when we see the hand of God move the most and healing happening and God doing amazing things and all that was required for that to occur is for God's people to pray. So when we look at chapter 18, as we're reminded of that, it says, It came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. Hey, God says, You go, it's time. Now the Lord could have withheld the rain forever, but things are getting bad. I would say at this point, initially they're mad at Elijah and they hunt him. Then they're frustrated at their deity not being able to provide for them what's going on. And at this point, I think as Elijah moves back, the people's hearts are prepared to receive the truth. So God says, it's time to go back, Elijah. Back to the guy who, by the way, in the last three and a half years has been looking to kill you. But I want you to go see him. So the Lord calls him to move. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. And there was severe famine in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was in charge of his house. And Obadiah, he feared the Lord greatly. The word Obadiah means Yahweh's servant. Yahweh's servant. It's not the same Obadiah that we read about on the page of Scripture as a prophet, but he certainly is God's man. So we know on one hand, God is sending Elijah. Don't forget, Elijah, his name means Yahweh is God. Yahweh is Lord. That's what Elijah means. It actually plays into the story in a little while. And you have here Obadiah, the servant of Yahweh, or Yahweh's servant. He's there working for Ahab. And Ahab has a job for him. Look what Ahab tells him. Um, it says in, in verse 4, it's a parenthetical statement. It says, For it was while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them, 50 to a cave, and fed them with bread and water. So two caves, 50 each, filled with the remaining members of the school of the prophets that had been in the area around Ahab and Jezebel. <laughs> Obadiah, though he's an enemy hands an enemy country he's been lifted up in a position of authority under ahab yet he continues to serve the lord where he's at by trying to protect god's people in a land full of famine he is still taking 
bread and water to the caves to feed the prophets. Well, it says, Ahab said to Obadiah, Go into the land to all the springs of water and to all the brooks. Perhaps we might find a little grass that we might keep the horses and mules alive so that we will not have to kill any livestock. So they divided the land between them to explore it. Ahab went one way by himself. Obadiah went the other way by himself. And as Obadiah was on his way, suddenly Elijah met him. We're going to see this kind of a concept often when we talk about Elijah. I am intrigued by the fact that we we don't hear about his birth. We don't hear about what he was about. He just appears when God's people need him. I think that's, I don't, I don't, not because I believe he didn't have a mom, but I just think it's a trip how the Bible shows us him in that way. And we all know about Elijah, maybe we don't, Elijah's death. Elijah never died. Elijah was taken into heaven by a chariot of fire and a whirlwind. And so we see Elijah, here's Obadiah out <clears throat> looking to see if he can find a little grass so they don't have to kill off the livestock. And they're looking for any little green bit of grass, weeds, whatever they can find. And Obadiah, boom, there's Elijah. All of a sudden, it says, suddenly Elijah met him, and he recognized him and fell on his face. And he said, is that you, my Lord, Elijah? I want you to think about it. Every time someone says Elijah on the page of Scripture, what they are saying is Yahweh is Lord. It's you, Yahweh is Lord. He falls on his face. He falls on his face before Elijah. It says, and he answered him and he said, It is I, go tell your master Elijah. You'll notice in your Bibles that it says, Go tell your master Elijah is here. But the is here is in italics. That means that the is here has been added to the text so that we understand what's being said. Well, let's remove the is here, the, the attempt of the, the guys who translated the Bible for us to <clears throat> help us understand, and let's just remember what Elijah means. Go tell your master, Yahweh is Lord. Well, who was his master serving? Baal. Go tell your master, Elijah. That's what he says to him. Go tell your master, Elijah, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is real. Yahweh is the power. Yahweh is a real, true, living God. So as we look, he says, go tell your master, Elijah. So he said, now Obadiah, listen to Obadiah. Obadiah is going <clears> to <throat> whine a little. How have I sinned that you are delivering your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? It doesn't sound like Obadiah wants to go tell Ahab anything about Elijah, right? But listen to what's going to happen. He goes on. So he said, As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. And when they said he's not here, he took an oath from the kingdom or nation that they could not find you. And now you say, go tell your master. It's there again. Go tell your master, Elijah. Yahweh is God. You say, go tell him. He's been looking to and fro. Really, who is Ahab's battle against? Is his battle against Elijah the prophet? No, he's fighting. His rebellion is against God. Who were the Sanhedrin really upset with? 
They're really upset with God. Angry with God as they look at Jesus Christ and, and uh, set their, their pronouncement upon Him that He would be crucified for blasphemy. <laughs> over and over again, the battle is against God. And so He's saying, I, I don't want to go tell Him. I don't want to go tell Ahab anything. I'm looking for grass. I'm okay with that job. I'll go look for grass. But I don't really want to tell Him. I don't want to go say to Him these things. But listen... It says, it, this is why he says it in verse 12, Obadiah says, For it will come to pass, as soon as I am gone from you, that the Spirit of the Lord will carry you to a place I do not know. This is often something that's talked about with Elijah. Elijah suddenly is on the scene. When Elijah told Ahab it's not going to rain, they didn't look for him immediately, but after it didn't rain for a while, they started looking for him. But they can't find him anywhere. They can't find him where he's at. It's as though the hand of God is over him. And though Elijah is in their midst and <laughs> doing the things that he's doing, nobody knows where he's at. And Obadiah says, I'm not going to go tell the king anything about you because as soon as I do, you're going to disappear, but I'll still be there. And when he can't find you, he'll kill me. So he's, he's not really behind what Elijah is trying to say. So Elijah has another word for him. He says, But I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Now I like that. Obadiah, as he's saying to Elijah, he's saying, Man, I, I have feared the Lord from, from a time I was young. I always tried to do what God wants. It's, it's almost as though he's saying, I'm a good person who serves God. Don't make me do this. But as we read... And the page of Scripture, some of us have been going through Revelation on Tuesday nights. And as we, we, we went through the, the letter to the, to the church of the Laodiceans, and one of the things that we see in the, on the, in the Scripture of the church of the Laodiceans, Jesus says to them, Buy from me gold refined in the fire. That the treasure that we seek to lay up for ourselves in heaven is that which is refined in the fire, in the furnace of affliction in the trials in God saying to Obadiah hey I need you to be my man one more time and it means you're going to stand before a crazy king who may want to kill you will you do it and I think in the next verse we see what's going to what is going to uh, enable him to be willing it says in verse 13 for was it not reported to my Lord what I did? He's telling them. Obadiah is saying, this is what I've done. Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, but I hid a hundred of them. Of the Lord's prophets, fifty to a cave, and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your master, Elijah, Yahweh is Lord. He will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will present myself to him today. So he says, Obadiah, you don't have to worry. I'm not running. I'm not hiding. You tell him I'm coming. I'll be there today. I will see Ahab today. So Obadiah decides to serve. He decides to do what it is that God is calling him to do. And so, Scripture tells us, So Obadiah went to meet Ahab, and he told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. I wonder what he was thinking on the way. I'm going to go see Elijah. I've had it with that guy. 
Hasn't rained for three and a half years because of his big mouth. I'm going to make sure he makes it rain. We'll take care of that guy. I got some plans for Elijah. Maybe that's what he's thinking. It says, then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that you, the troubler of Israel? This will not be the last time Elijah will be called that. The book of Revelation, we're told in the last days, when the Antichrist rules, that God will send two prophets to Israel. One of those prophets, according to Malachi, is going to be Elijah. And Elijah is going to do the same kind of things he did here to the Antichrist. And the Antichrist is going to be telling everybody that he is God and people should worship him. But Elijah, he's going to come and he's going to produce the same kind of miracles, the same kind of famine, the same kind of withholding the rain by prayer. He's going to do those same kind of things. And the Antichrist is going to call him the troubler of all the world. But in reality, just like at this point, it's not, is Elijah troubling the <coughs> Israel? He's just telling them the truth. And so that's what he says. <coughs> As we look at scripture, he says, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have. And this is in what way? Look at it. In that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Not just Baal, the Baals. Baal, Ashtoreth, and uh, there's one more. I want to say Aristotle, but that's a guy. <clears throat> It'll come to me. Uh, Ashtar, Ashtar. So there's three that are all considered a family of the Baals. They all kind of intermingled depending on the, on the tribes around Canaan. So as we look at it, they're serving all those. Well, what is it? Elijah says the problem has come because, one, you have forsaken the commandments of God. That means they had forsaken the word of God. Later on, we're going to come to a, a, a revival on the pages of Scripture when we read about Josiah. And we're going to come to the fact that they, the people, even in the South, who have some semblance of desire to follow God, have lost the word. They stumble on the word of God. They didn't have it anymore. They didn't, it wasn't like they were walking around with scrolls under their arms. And the same way with Ahab. They just checked all that stuff out. All this doesn't have nothing for us. It doesn't mean nothing for us today. They neglected. They tossed it aside. They didn't apply it. it they were still held accountable by it. Because they had it. But they had set it aside. And they were worshiping false gods. They were worshiping, worshiping the gods of money, sex, and power. That's the gods of the Baal. That was their focus. That's what they were after. That's what their life's pursuit was. And so, uh, Elijah says, this is the problem. This is what's been going on. This is what has brought all these things upon you. Now, therefore, he says, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel. The 450 prophets of Baal... And the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel to be gathered and the prophets together on Mount Carmel. So all the people of Israel go to Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is about a thousand feet in elevation. It's a, I don't know if you'd actually call it a mountain in Israel, you'd call it a mountain. But you, you come to Mount Carmel, it's, it's, it's up there a ways. 
<coughs> and as we look over it, it sits almost like a almost like a pulpit, like a plateau. And you can see all throughout the Jezreel Valley. The Jezreel Valley, as you look at the page of Scripture, is known by another name, depending on which books you're reading. Uh, the Jezreel Valley has a famous mountain in it. The mountain's called Megiddo. And so oftentimes it is called Har Megiddo, or the Valley of Armageddon. Jezreel. This is where this battle takes place. This contest of Elijah, of who's the real God. Will the real God please stand up? <clears throat> the issue isn't even, rain hasn't even come upon the, the issue at this point. The point is, who's real? So listen to what Elijah says. Elijah came to all the people, and he said, How long will you falter between two opinions? How long? The word for falter means to limp or to hop. And the, the opinions, the word for opinions is a divided thoughts. The whole content is there are divided thoughts. There is God Almighty and there is, on the other hand, Baals. It could be anything else. And he says, how often are you going to hop back and forth from one to the other? This is what the people were guilty of. He's not telling the people they're guilty of all kind of other horrible sins. He says the problem is you hop from reliance upon God to reliance upon Baal to reliance upon God. And he says how long are you going to falter between these two divided thoughts? The picture is like a bird jumping from one branch to another. <clears throat> how long? Will you have a divided heart? How long will you just allow God to just be a part of your life instead of allowing God to be your life, to be who you are? That's where they're at. This is the charge that, that Elijah makes to them. If the Lord is God, he says, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But stop bouncing back and forth. Follow what is true. So he's going to put together a contest for what is true. Oftentimes, when people look at these, this section of Scripture, they, they wonder, God, why? I wish God would do something like that today. Just prove himself so mightily today. Let me tell you why he doesn't. Because a miracle has never changed the heart of a man. Ever. There's never been a man who saw a miracle whose heart changed there has been a man who decided to lay his life down for God who then experienced the miracle of God changing him from the inside out but they didn't change they didn't change think about who saw the greatest miracles of all time 12 disciples well 11 Judas was hanging out somewhere else Eleven guys, what did they see? All the miracles that Jesus did, what else? They saw Jesus die, rise from the dead, hang out with them for, for 40 days, then ascend up into heaven. So if miracles was all that really mattered, if a miracle was what was going to change a guy, why would Jesus have said to them, stay here, in Jerusalem until you have been endued with power. 
Stay here until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. If a miracle was where it was at. Where it's at is in the willingness to make a change of direction. It's a simple word in the Bible. It's called repent. Repent. Without repentance, there will be no change in a person's life. You ever known someone who put their faith and trust in Jesus, but nothing ever changed in their life? Well, that's because they never really put their trust in Jesus. It requires repentance. That means we turn from the old and we walk toward the new. Doesn't mean we're perfect. We just make that decision. And God meets us in that place and does the work. And we're going to see the proof of that right here on Mount Carmel. So the people say to him, when Elijah says, if God's true, follow him. If Baal's true, follow him. The people say, perfect. Prove to us God is real and we'll follow him. The people agree. It says the people answered him, uh, not a word. In their silence, they say, show us. So Elijah said to the people, I alone and left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, <clears throat> let them give us two bulls and let them choose one bowl for themselves. Cut it in pieces, lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord, Yahweh. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people said, it's well spoken, good plan, let's do it. So 450 priests of Baal are the only ones who showed up. Elijah, <coughs> excuse me, called <coughs> for the 400 priests of Ashtar who was with uh, Jezebel. But apparently Jezebel didn't cut him loose, nor did Jezebel go. Jezebel is still uh, away, in fact, 14 miles away. We're going to see Ahab, Ahab run to her in a moment with her priests. She doesn't send them. She doesn't care What's true or not true, what's real or false, doesn't matter. She is in rebellion against God, and that's not going to change. That's why, in the page of Scripture, she becomes a symbol of that rebellion against the Lord. You see her name crop up again in the book of Revelation over that same kind of an attitude. That woman Jezebel, who is against the move of God wherever he is. <laughs> so as we look... 450 priests of Baal are there. They're ready to go. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one bowl for yourselves and prepare it first. For you are many. And call on the name of your God and put no fire under it. So they took the bowl, which was given to them. They prepared it. Called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they had made. That word for leaped, the same word is how often will you falter between two opinions? How often will you limp or jump from one branch to the other? So these guys begin leaping, jumping around. Scripture goes on to say, um, <clears throat> Elijah begins to, to prod them in verse 27. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud! For he is a God, either he's meditating, or maybe he's busy, or he may be on a journey, or maybe he's asleep, and you must wake him up. So they cried aloud, and cut themselves, as was their custom, 
with knives and lances until the blood gushed out of them. Now, oftentimes we just read through that and we say, so they began to cut themselves. Listen, the priests of Baal and the high priests of the pagan religions around the Canaanites, oftentimes when they were calling on the name of their God, one of the priests would kill himself with a knife, split himself open as a sacrifice to wake up their God. And so when he says, hey, maybe he's asleep, maybe he can't hear you, they're cutting themselves with implements of war. Not a little nick, not a little scratch. They're ripping their bodies open. And when the Bible says the blood gushed out of them, that's what it means. The blood is gushing out of them. They're dancing around, they're singing, they're calling. They're making every sacrifice possible so that their God, Baal, would hear them. And then it says in verse 29, When midday was passed, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. So after midday, they cut themselves. It doesn't happen. So then they prophesy. That word for prophesy is the word rage. They rage. They, they began to fly into a, a series of different utterances. <coughs> um, the, 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 the attitude in the Hebrew is they're, they're crazed. Jumping all over the place, cutting themselves, yelling out to, to the god Baal to no avail. When it comes to the time of the evening sacrifice, it says, But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then it says in verse 30, And Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. It begins with Elijah repairing what was torn down. At the time that Jezebel came into Israel, she tore down all the altars of sacrifices to God. And she built the groves to worship other gods. So Elijah goes to this altar and he repairs it. He rebuilds it. Scripture tells us he goes back to doing it with 12 stones. 12 stones, in essence, the the circumference of the altar is going to be utilized. It says, Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So here, Elijah, all the people are watching him, he rebuilds the altar. The altar that the priests of Baal were using was fancy. It was fancy because the focus was on the altar and the focus was on the priests. But the Lord said with his altar not to make it fancy, just regular stones. Because the focus isn't the altar, the focus is the sacrifice. Because the sacrifice is Jesus Christ. The sacrifice is what makes us clean. It's what makes us righteous. It's what gives us a relationship with God. He focuses on 12 stones in a circle. Why? Because there are 12 tribes and they shall be called Israel. What's Israel mean? Governed by God. A people governed by God. Remember Jacob, the heel catcher, the deceiver? That's what his name meant. The deceiver. And God, Jacob wrestled with God one night. And then God changed his name. He took away Jacob's ability to be self-reliant and trust in his own strength. God touched his hip and the muscle shriveled and he was lame from that time forward. He, he couldn't walk except with the help of a cane. 
And then God called his name <coughs> Israel. Governed by God. Now you can't deliver yourself. Now you have to trust me. So Elijah gives that lesson. He builds that altar. Not a fancy, just uh, uh, stones that he found on the ground, 12 around. He builds up this altar, the dirt. He, he makes, in essence, a pit barbecue that he can put this bowl on. And this bowl is going to be set. The scripture tells us. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two says of seed. So he builds a trench around it. So you have the altar. Picture the altar. Just round stones built up like place, like a fire. A place where you could burn. And with a grate across the top. And then around that he built a, a trench. The trench is is going to come into play here in a moment. <laughs> so he puts a trench around it, and he put the wood in order, and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And then he said, fill four water pots with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. So they're right there by a brook. He says, get four water pots. These would have been the water pots that women would have carried um, every day to gather water for the family. And he says, go get four water pots, fill them up. So they go down... Fill these water pots with water, pour it over the top of the sacrifice, the wood, the altar, and then it runs into the trench. So it goes, runs down over all the wood, and then the water goes out into the trench on the outside. He fills the four water pots with water, and they poured it. He said, do it a second time. They did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. They did it a third time. So that the water ran all around the altar, and he filled the trench what water so there's a trench around this barbecue the wood is sopping wet the the sacrifice is sopping wet water all over everything water all over the stuff <clears throat> he doesn't even have a match two sticks to rub together a pile of wood but the scripture says it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that elijah the prophet came near and said Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. That goes back to James. And Elijah prayed. Circumstances were out of control. 450 priests of a false god over there dancing and carrying on. He's trying to show the people that God is real. And there's going to be an incredible miracle. There's going to be an incredible miracle that's going to take place. And so, <coughs> Elijah prayed. And the fire of God is going to fall. But it's going to fall after Elijah prayed. If we want to see the fire of God in our time, not maybe coming down and devouring a sacrifice, but perhaps coming down and devouring the living sacrifice that God calls us to be. That the fire of God would come upon us. That it would burn us. That He would ignite a fire in us to be the men and women that God's calling us to be. It will only happen... When God's people pray. Period. It's not going to come any other time. 
It won't matter how many times you go to church. Revival won't start. Study the revivals of history. Every revival ever, ever, going all the way back to the day of Pentecost, was wrought in prayer. The day of Pentecost, where were the 120 disciples of Jesus Christ? They were gathered in the upper room doing what? Praying. In prayer. In one accord. In prayer. And the Spirit of God was poured out. And all kind of crazy things happened and the world was turned upside right for a time. And then the world finds itself upside down again. And is in need of another revival. And so God's people begin to gather and pray. And revival comes. But it always comes as a result of the desire of God's people to pray. Not to plan, not to scheme, not to think about how we need to do this or how we need to do that. It comes because God's people pray. Elijah prayed. Show them. Show them, God. He laid out the, the, the sacrifice. He laid out the altar. And he said to the Lord, show them. Show them who you are. <clears throat> so he says in verse 37, Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts Back to you again. Turn their hearts back to you again. When John the Baptist came, what was he what was he doing in the wilderness as Jesus is coming on the scene? Turning people's hearts back to the Lord again. He preached repentance, change of life for the people. He prepared the way for Jesus. When Elijah comes in the end of days, he's going to do the same thing. But the Bible tells in the book of James, Elijah was just like you and me. There was not something special about him except that he prayed. That he was a man given, committed to prayer. He prayed, Lord, turn their hearts. And that's what God does. And the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the dust. And it licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, you see that next phrase in your Bibles? The Lord, He is God. You know what that word is? Elijah. 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 Said the Lord, He is God. Well, Jackie, I thought you said a miracle never changed anybody. <clears throat> well, we're going to keep reading the story. Don't worry. Long time ago, God uh, gave me an opportunity to be a youth pastor. I was a youth pastor of a, um, well, I thought it was a big youth group. There were bigger youth groups in California, but it was pretty big as far as I'm concerned. And um, we had this huge group. Now, this is how we did youth group. We didn't play no games. We didn't have a pool table or ping pong or nothing. We showed up, taught the word, did worship, taught the word, hung out with the kids for a while. We'd do special events where we'd go do fun stuff. But when we came together at church, we come together to study the word, to worship the Lord. We had a worship team all made up of kids. Actually, out of that worship team, several bands uh, uh, arose out of that. But there was a time when we first began... We were frustrated. We feel like cops. 
You ever feel like cops when, you, when you're doing stuff with kids? I felt like a cop. So I'm always trying to, don't do that. Stop touching her. Stop doing this. Stop doing that. That's all I was doing all the time. And I was frustrated. And I was frustrated because I wanted so much more that the kids would actually get the concepts that we we're talking about and that their life would begin to ignite with what God wanted to do in their life. And the more we taught and the more we worshiped and the more we tried to pour into them, the more frustrated we got. So we decided every Monday we're going to get together, all the leaders, everybody who was in youth group. I think we had probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 people that were working with us, somewhere in the neighborhood of 100, 120 kids. And we'd sit down at my house and pray for every kid. And through that, we had some youth leaders that couldn't get into it. You know, they didn't want to pray for their, there was a problem between them and the kids. And so God pointed it out and they left. And the rest that were there, we prayed and we prayed for those kids and we prayed that God would move and we prayed that God would do something different. And everything in youth group changed. I don't even know how many pastors have come out of that crew of kids that we had during those years. How many guys are in full-time ministry. How many guys God's just poured himself out on mighty ways. How many worship leaders. How many, how many people are, have been saved as a result of all that stuff. All I know is we prayed. The hearts of God's kids changed. We saw a radical revival move through the youth group. And a lot of incredible things take place. God did some amazing things during that time but you know what god's people do we forget and we get down the road and we just start falling back on this is what we do here's what we do and and then it's it's no longer that fervent prayer it's just a thing we do i go to the prayer meeting i'm just punching my card right go to the prayer meeting click went to church click i read my bible click I did this, click, and so now all this stuff's going to happen as a result. That's not the same thing. You find yourself going through the motions, and what's required at that point? A revival. Just like what happened in the beginning. Where's that revival found? A revival is found when the hearts of God's people are broken before Him, and they seek Him fervently. And he pours his spirit out. Well, that's what we need. It's what we need in our churches, in our communities, in our nation. It's what we need. I know that how the end of the story goes. I know the world's not going to get a better, become a better and better and better place. I don't believe that. I think the world's circling the drain until Jesus comes back. But it doesn't change my responsibility, no matter how the world's going or the direction of the world. It doesn't absolve me of my responsibility to fulfill what God's called me to do. And he's called me to go into all the world and make disciples of most guys? No, all. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To teach, to baptize, to go. To teach, to baptize, to go. That's what he's called us to. But sometimes we find ourselves like these guys, maybe just going through the motions. He, he does it. Fire comes down from heaven. Boom! Revival hits instantly. All the people shout, Elijah! 
Elihu, Yahweh is God, Yahweh is God, the Lord is God. They're all excited. You see the, the beginning of, a, of an outpouring. But tragically, it's momentary. It's always momentary when it's like that. It's always momentary when it's the show. It's always momentary when it's emotional. It's, it's more permanent when it's real, when it happens inside, when your heart breaks, when you're overwhelmed by God, when it's not a show, when it's not about emotion, but when it's about the reality of what God is doing inside the life of a person. And these guys, they all shout, Yahweh is Lord, God is the Lord, He proved it, He showed us. We're going to see Elijah run back, Jezebel tell him, this time tomorrow I'm going to kill you, and Elijah takes off running for the desert, disappointed. Not just because... Jezebel wouldn't believe, but because he knows. This is the northern kingdom. They never caught fire for the Lord. Ever. They see the flash, the miracle, the excitement is momentary, and then it wanes. And they find themselves back with a whole new crop of priests of Baal, worshiping at the altar of money, sex, and power, and resisting the altar of the true and living God. That's what they do. It says in verse 40, Elijah said to them, Grab the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. (coughs) And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. Still today, by the way, if you go to Jezreel, and it's Arab name, the Arab name for Mount Jezreel is called uh, uh, the Mount Something like the Mount of the Destruction of the Priests. They, they name it by Elijah's battle. Even the Arab people around it. Same, same name for the same area. Same concept. And then he kills all of them. And it says, And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the abundance of rain. When God's people would call upon his name, he said, I will send the rain. So they called on his name momentarily. Maybe their hearts are swung for real. It's, it's not going to last, but God honors his word. He says to Ahab, go. The rain's coming. By the way, there wasn't a cloud in the sky. In fact, scripture tells us, so Ahab went up to eat and drink. And Elijah went to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed down on the ground and he put his face between his knees. What's he doing? He's in a position of prayer. He's bowed down on the ground and he's praying. He don't even lift his head. He says, and it, he said uh, to his servant, go now, look toward the sea. The Bible doesn't say he lifted up his head, he looked around. He's bowed down on the ground, he's on his hands and knees, his face on the ground. And from that position he says to his servant, go look. And the servant goes and looks over Mount Carmel. So you can look right over the Mediterranean Sea. You can see it. And you look right over and he says, you see any clouds? And his servant says, I don't see any clouds. There's nothing. Seven times he said, go back. He'd come back, go look again, go look again, go look again. Seven times. And it came to pass the seventh time that he said, there's a cloud. As small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So he said, go and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and get down before the rain stops you. One 
little cloud way out in the horizon. And Ahab says, you better get down the mountain now. Because pretty soon there will be so much rain you won't make it. Three and a half years, no rain. Elijah showing the people, declaring to them, God is real. He's who he said he was. Here comes the rain. He's the one in power. He's the one that has the ability to bring what he said he could bring. It's him that you should trust. And it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind. And there was a heavy rain. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. So they're heading down the Jezreel Valley. That's the Valley of Armageddon. Headed to uh, the palace of Ahab where Jezebel is. And it says, Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah. And he girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So Ahab is in a chariot with a horse. Elijah is on foot. He beats the chariot with the horse in a 14-mile race. So excited about what God's doing. The Bible says God equipped him to do it. The hand of the Lord came upon him and he girded up his loins. All that means is he lifted up his skirt. Nobody likes to run in a skirt, right? So they have a belt around their waist. What they would do is they would pull up the skirt between their legs, make shorts out of it, put it underneath their belt, cinch it up. It was called girding up their loins, the same way they fight battles. And they'd be ready to run. And off he goes. Running under the power of the Lord, and he's so excited about the victory. And I'm sure he thinks that the people, now they've seen it. They saw the miracle. Fire came out of heaven. They declared that the Yahweh is the Lord. They put their hearts on him. And as soon as he walks through the gate of the city of Jezreel, he runs into Jezebel. And she says, more so happen to me if this time tomorrow you're not dead. And he thinks, I thought you cared about what was true. I thought if I showed you something real, it would change. And he realized the heart of men won't change because of a miracle. The heart of men only changes when God gets inside the heart of man and does the changing. It's the only way it changes. That's how human nature will change. It won't change by the miracles. It doesn't matter what he does. How many miracles? Children of Israel saw the Red Sea pile up on both sides, walked across as on dry land. Then they saw the Red Sea come together and drown the armies of, of uh, Pharaoh. How long did that carry them? Not very long. Then they're hungry or thirsty and they start complaining. Moses, you brought us out here to kill us. So then God would provide them food and water. How long did that last them? Not very long. Every morning they would get up and collect manna. And every evening they would curse God and say, Why have you brought us out to this forsaken desert? It's not the miracles that change anybody. But when those men humble themselves before a holy God, when they bow before that God in submission unto Him, when they pray, when the Bible says... <clears throat> 
Daniel saw a vision. All the kingdoms of the Lord were in this statue. And a rock, not cut out with hands, in the heavens, strike that statue and turn it into powder. Obliterate all the kingdoms of the world. That's the whole symbolism of, of the, the vision Nebuchadnezzar had in, in Daniel. And then Daniel says, Then that rock grew until it became the whole earth. The rock who's made with hands not cut out in the heavens is Jesus Christ. And the scripture declare, Whoever falls on that rock will be broken, but he'll be saved. But upon whom that rock falls, he will be crushed, obliterated. Every man's faced with the same choice. Even those guys, when they saw the miracle, if they would fall on the rock and be broken, acknowledge, I'm a sinner, have a, 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 a right view of themselves. Again, we looked at Laodicea. What was their view? I'm rich, I'm powerful, I don't need anything. And God said, you don't know you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Somebody had the wrong view, right? <laughs> when we go to Romans chapter 7, what does Paul say? Who will save me, this wretched man, from this body of death? We fall on the rock, we recognize our need. When we recognize our need, we're broken. When we're broken, Jesus puts us back together again. He enters into our life. He empowers us for service. And when his people pray, things like we just read happen. The fire of God comes down and ignites the sacrifice. Today, that sacrifice is men and women. And they are able to do amazing things for God as a result. Because God's people pray. Amen. Do stand with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this time. Just an opportunity to study your word, to see, God, what you have for us in the pages of Scripture. Lord, I pray, Father, that our, our hearts and mind would be turned towards you, God, not in desiring to see the miraculous, though I know you do that, but in recognizing I have to come before you broken. I have to recognize that I am not a good person, I am a sinner. There's a word for what I do. It's called sin. And it separates me from a holy, pure, and just God. And in order to be made right, I have to come before you and acknowledge who I am. I am Jackie, a sinner in need of a Savior. Lord, forgive me. I need to fall on the rock, which is Jesus Christ, and be broken. And allow Him to enter in. Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 the Lord said behold I stand at the door and knock and if any man will open the door I will enter into him and sup with him and he with me there will be communion position with the Lord God Almighty when we open the door of our heart because we acknowledge I am a sinner not a good person deserving of anything but a sinner I have sinned against God and I need his forgiveness Lord God I pray that your people 
we would learn that that's what you're calling us to. An attitude of repentance and an attitude of prayer. To call on you and to see your hand move through our church, through our family, through our neighborhood. <coughs> that we would see you do the amazing things you do when your people pray. That we would see the sick healed. That we would see the sinners forgiven. That see what we would see lives change and people set free. All because, like James said in chapter 5, we prayed. So God, we ask that you would put on us the desire, the hunger, to find you in that place where the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And we lay this before you, God, and ask that you would move, even as Elijah prayed. Hear us, Lord God, move in us. Bring us into that right place. Ignite us with your fire, that we might burn with a holy fire <clears throat> to be able to accomplish the things that you are calling us to, and that we would be a people of prayer. And we give you the praise for it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to close out in a word of worship. And we invite you to just join us in a time of, of worship and prayer. And afterwards we'll join you in a time of fellowship. God bless you. Go in peace. You know, we have a God who never lets go. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your perfect love cast out fear. Even though I'm caught in the middle of the storms of this life we won't turn back i know you are near i will fear no evil for my god is with me if my god is with me whom then shall i fear whom then shall I fear? Oh no, never let go through the calm, through the storm. Oh no, never let go every high, every low. Oh no, never let go, never let go of me. I can see a light that's coming. For the heart that holds on The glorious light beyond all compare There'll be an end 
to these troubles until that day come. You live to know you here on earth. I will fear no evil. Oh, my God is with me. If my God is with me, whom then shall I fear? Who then shall I fear? Oh, no, never let go through the calm, through the storm. Never let go of me. Yes, I can see the light that's coming for the heart that holds on. Run to the troubles until that day comes. Still I will praise you. Still I will praise you. Never let go of me. Never let go through the calm, through the storm. Oh no, never let go. Every high, every low. Oh no, never let go. Never let go of me. Yes, I can see light that's coming for the heart that holds on. There be an end to these troubles. Until that day comes, still I will praise you, still I will praise you. Lord, you never go of me, oh no, never let go through the calm, through the storm, oh no, never let go every high, every low. Never let go of me Lord, never let go of me Lord, we just thank you. What a promise, Lord. Lord, we stand on that rock which is our Lord Jesus. Lord, and you, you place us upon that rock, Lord, and we Testify of your love and your goodness, Lord, and you uh, are creating in us a new heart, a new life in you. Lord, just go before us. Lord, be with us as we fellowship. Lord, bless us. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.